John Nash had a problem. You see, his friends would get into mischief, and then when the authorities came around, his friends were nowhere to be found. This happened time and time again. Maybe you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind. I had the great misfortune of watching this movie with a group of close friends, and after about the third or fourth time of John Nash's friends disappearing, I, out of exasperation, finally said, where do they keep going? Well, you see, they weren't real, right? At least not to anybody other than John. John had to learn that some things are less real and some things are more real than others. In the middle of the night, I'll awake sometimes to the shriek of my three-year-old son. Electrified, I'll leap out of bed, tripping over Buzz Lightyear and stepping on the sharp corners of Legos. I can't get there fast enough. I get to his room. I cradle his little shivering body. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Thank God that some things are more real than other things. Three weeks ago, I helped a mom and dad tuck their 20-year-old into his bed. It was 80 people huddled around a silver casket. I mean, what do you say when you're in the valley of the shadow of death? Where does the pastor even comfort himself during these times? Thank God that some things are more real than other things. And here we are this morning with Paul in this latter half of Romans 7. These words that have historically been confusing and debated and what is going on here? Centuries. I mean, let's just step back for a moment and take a look at what Paul is saying in the surrounding text in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He says, when I talk about my old self, I mean my dead self. And when I talk about me, I don't really mean me as much as I mean my body of sin, which I don't mean to be my real body. You know, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? You're tracking with that? And when I talk about the death of my flesh, I don't really mean real death, and I don't mean my real flesh either, because flesh is not just your external stuff out here. And when I say death, I don't mean death, death. You know, and when I say law of my members, I don't mean my real law, and I don't even mean my real members. Are you following with what I'm saying? Is this getting through? Are you guys, is this making sense? Paul, Paul, come here. Let me feel your forehead, Paul. How many fingers am I holding up, Paul? Paul, did you write this after you crawled out of the ocean after being adrift for a night and a day, and this made sense at the time, like when you wake up and dreams make sense, but it's not making a whole lot of sense right now. Paul, have you not taken Dr. Creech's class where we talk about self-care? Paul, did you miss that one in Pharisee school? I've got one word for you, Paul. Sabbatical. It is time for a sabbatical, Paul. I mean, what do we make of this? Paul has a real problem here. The first question many of the scholars and theologians have argued about for centuries is, are we even talking about a regenerate person here? Is, is this even a Christian? Can a Christian have these kinds of struggles? Is this his B.C. days, or is this his days after that Damascus Road experience? Is this just a speech in character where, he, where he's personifying maybe somebody that isn't a Christian, or is this his real struggle in the Christian life? The, Greek, the uh, Greeks called it a, a tension between passion and reason. Is this Plato's analogy of the chariot with the dark horse that wants to pull you down to the earth and the light horse that wants to pull you up 
above the clouds. Is that what's going on here with Paul? Maybe that's headed in the right direction, but this is certainly more than a good angel on one shoulder and a red devil on the other shoulder. Jewish thought labeled this as a split in the human will. That's helpful, but this is certainly more than two angry dogs within me fighting over the same piece of meat. This is more than that. I mean, whatever's going on here is deep, and it's profound, and Paul seems helpless at times even. Theologians have taken sides on this one over the years. Those who contend that this is B.C. Paul, before Christ Paul, many of the Greek fathers, pre-Pelagius Augustine, Jerome, Abelard, Aquinas, Erasmus, Bucer, Arminius, Spainer. And this is just the first string. They got a whole bench waiting to get in the game back here. Now for the other team, they're like, this is Paul's experience as a Christian. That includes post-Pelagius Augustine, Jerome. He's a double agent. He's playing both sides there. Luther, Calvin, Beza. And then they've got a bench full as well that's ready to get in the game. One side says the internal evidence is clear. This is Paul before Christ. And if you say differently, you reject the Holy Spirit's power in your life. You reject the efficacy of what God has done in Christ. You reject all kinds of things. And you give people a license to sin. You say, look, uh, Paul got away with it. Go ahead. Have some fun. That's what you do if you say that this is pre-Christian Paul. And the other side says the internal evidence is clear. This is Paul as a Christian. And if you say differently, you ignore the obvious meaning of the text. Why can't I just mean I? You deny the struggle that is the Christian life. And guess what? I bet you've sinned recently. Maybe you're not saved either. So the lines have been drawn. Really, the, 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 the question here is, what do we do with sin? This notion of missing the mark, going off course from God's ways. Do we just say that you're a sinner because you sin, so stop sinning? Or do we say you're, you, you sin because you're a sinner. You need to stop being a sinner. Right? We're back to Pelagius and Augustine, that whole thing. Now, I certainly have a preference between those two, but either way you cut it, it's just not going to be easy. The medieval solution to this was to identify justification and sanctification as a pilgrimage. Christians are pilgrims. Today we use language like getting saved, and the way one gets saved in the Middle Ages was by spending their entire lives as a pilgrim. No, not the Puritan kind of pilgrim, Mayflower and Thanksgiving, not that kind of pilgrim. Think pilgrimage, think journey. The pilgrim began her journey through the grace of God. Then she would spend the rest of her life going to church, participating in the sacraments like confirmation and communion. These were spiritual booster shots in the arm to help you out as you went along the journey. You participated with the, the, the grace that God had given to you so that you could do what he had called you to do, doing what was within you all along this journey. And when you get to the end of the journey, you stand there before God, fingers crossed, hoping that you had done everything that he had put in you to do, and then he would make up for any kind of deficiency from there. He would supply the rest. Well, along came a monk. He liked his Augustine. He liked his Bible. He liked his beer. He was German. And this monk was really type A, and he about killed himself under this system. If a monk ever made it to heaven by his monkery, it would have been I, he said. 
There's an inherent problem in this system, though. I already mentioned it. Nobody ever knows if they're good enough. You stand before God on that last day with your fingers crossed. So this monk couldn't go on any longer under that system, and he did something radical. He said that instead of everything substantial happening incrementally throughout the pilgrim's life and then really at the end of the pilgrim's journey, something substantial happens at the beginning of the pilgrim's journey. He didn't entirely throw out the pilgrim motif. He modified it, and he added something to it. He added a marriage motif. He said, at the beginning of the journey, the pilgrim gets married to Jesus. The two shall become one. And just like in marriage, all the pilgrim stuff, sin, wickedness, judgment, now belongs to the other, Jesus. And all of Jesus' stuff, righteousness, acceptance, approval before God, becomes the pilgrims. It was like this when I got married to my wife seven years ago. All of my stuff became her... Actually, all of my stuff got sold in a garage sale. But all of her stuff became mine. So it's a modified version of that as well. But here's the interesting part. Luther doesn't completely dismiss the notion that we are pilgrims, that we are on a journey. The Christian life is a journey. It's a struggle for victory. But I think what Luther wanted us to see is that it's not just a struggle for victory, but that it's a struggle from victory for victory. It's a struggle, though. Look at the incredibly strong language that Paul uses here. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. And these words describe a person who is utterly exhausted. Utterly exhausted. The word picture is is one whose hands are covered with calluses and about to bleed. He has completely exhausted himself, this kind of person. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. He's not just saying, you know, I really struggle to live up to civil standards. You know, the, the registration sticker on my camel is, is out by six months, and I cheated on my taxes last year. That's not what he's saying, not just civil standards. He's talking about that which is truly good, that which is truly ideal. That's what I want to do. I just can't. Why? Look at verse 23. I am captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Captive. This isn't the idea that you got hit in dodgeball and you've got to wait three minutes until it's your turn again. No, this is, this is serious business. The word picture here is that a spear is being held up to the person's neck. Captive. Can you see the blood beginning to trickle down? Strong language. But then on the other hand, Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. Delight, strong language. This is not just marginal preference, Eh, everything else being equal, I guess I'll choose God. No, this is delight. We're talking about absolute obsession with God's ways. He's saying, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about it. When I go to bed, I'm thinking about it. When I dream, that's what I'm dreaming about all throughout the day and night. This word delight here is kin to our word hedonism, right? Kind of a big word. He loves God's ways. He relishes God's ways. He is obsessed with God's ways. He indulges in God's ways. This isn't just, I like to read through the Bible each year. This is, I memorize the Old Testament, including Psalm 119. 
This is serious business. Are you beginning to see the picture that Paul is painting here of one who feels out of control all over the place? Two summers ago, I had the chance to take a glider flight. That's an airplane that doesn't have a motor. I'm fascinated with airplanes, so I said, yeah. So I showed up at 8 a.m., met my pilot, a 20-year-old junior in college. thought, oh, it's all right. Help wheel the glider out of the hangar, do the safety check, sign the waiver, get fitted for a helmet. Walked out to the glider with its tow rope already hooked up to the single-engine prop plane that's going to pull us up to 10,000 feet. I sat in the front, pilot sat in the back. We lowered the hatch, locked it into place, two little locks. What's that, what's that piece of orange yarn for? There's a piece of orange yarn taped to the outside of the glass. Oh, that's to tell us which direction the wind is blowing. Oh, this is high tech. Okay, okay. We, got, uh, we were pulled up to 10,000 feet and the pilot said, all right, when you're ready, pull that lever in front of you and it'll release us from the tow plane and we'll be ready to go. Whew. I was not ready. Hard thing about appearances is you have to keep them up. So I did and it got eerily quiet. This is a glider, remember. Me, my orange yarn, my 20-year-old junior in college, and 10,000 feet. Man, I hope my wife is smart with the insurance money. That's what I'm thinking at the time. And then it began up and down. Up, 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 down, down, up, down, 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 up, 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 up. In a way, my breakfast almost went out of me. We were all over the place. My stomach is in my throat. It was awful. Just awful. And then my 20-year-old junior in college pilot behind me said, Hey, I can pull the plane up until we stall, and then we'll begin falling to the earth, and I'll recover us. How does that sound? All I could get out of me was, no, no, thank you. I mean, this was awful. I had no idea that we would be so buffeted by the winds, completely at their mercy. And I think this is the picture that Paul is painting for us here. Here I am seeking to follow God when all of a sudden I am blindsided by something I did not expect. And it is all but impossible to follow God sometimes. This is messy. This is messy. But what do we expect? One kingdom is breaking into and displacing another. This is going to be messy. Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is at hand. Jesus showed up and said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is going to be messy. I'll, and you know what? I'll let... The theologians fight over their internal evidence, whether this is pre-Christian or in Christ, Paul, whatever they want to say. But I've got to admit, there is some internal evidence in here. Some kind of sympathetic resonance reaching across two millennia that makes something in here come alive and go, yes, yes, this is the struggle. That's it, Paul. I'm with Paul. I agree, God is not the problem here. Do you know what? Maybe God is the problem. Because ever since he said, let there be light, it has been expanding in all directions, the most troubling of which is my own heart. 
I mean, 12 years into this thing, you would think I would be learning to love my neighbor as myself. I don't even know their names. You'd think by now I'd be learning to trust God. I'm just learning how addicted I am to structure and order and control. Ask my family. See, I don't think Paul here is making room in the Christian life for gross immorality. I don't think he's saying the tent manufacturing sector went south and next thing you know I had embezzled a few talents from the Philippian church. I don't think that's where he's going with this. No. I think what we're talking about here is sanctification. That process by which the person of God begins to look more and more and more like God. I like how the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology says that sanctification is both a status conferred and a process pursued. It's both of them. From victory for victory. You are sanctified. Sanctification is going to be a journey. Get going. Martin Luther's marriage analogy is starting to make more sense to me here. I mean, you get married with the exchange of two rings and a few words and then the journey really begins. Now that's a journey that needs some grace. Calvin said that the faithful are divided into two parts, the relics of the flesh and grace. That's how Calvin put it. There seems to be this joyful, painful reality that as we grow closer to God, we begin to see that disparity between who God is and who we are even more clearly. And it's heartbreaking. We begin to see those relics of the flesh, as Calvin uh, put it. We, we, we see in new ways how this world does not line up to God. Spurgeon said that the nearer a person lives to God, the more intensely he mourns over the evil in his own heart. The more you see, the more you mourn. I think of Scott Cairn's poem, Affliction. He says, some mornings, it's just more of the same thing. There's that kind woman across the street. She's lame and so is her daughter. And there's some disease that is just dissolving their bones since birth. There's that little boy three doors down that's blind. There's that girl that cleans the floors in the grocery store and she insists on humming her own strange tune all day long. Sometimes they're happy enough, but sometimes you see one of them over in the corner muffling grief with a coat sleeve. And sometimes the way that little blind boy will stumble when he walks kind of, you know, and he has to kind of laugh to deal with that and it makes you laugh a little bit also. Some mornings it really hurts to see. It just really hurts to see. I think, I think he's right. It hurts to really begin to see, to see the vulnerability of children especially when you begin to realize that they actually trust us. At two days old, my son looked at me in the hospital room and said, will you love me and your mommy uh, and my mommy for the rest of your life? He embraced me with his eyes and I saw this. To see the generosity of the poor walking in the streets of Mozambique, Africa and street orphans trying to give me their crackers one little boy had five. He wanted me to have two of them. I couldn't. I couldn't. 
to hear the cries of the lonely, I now realize that all that little boy wanted was communion. I think we're getting closer to what Paul's talking about here. The closer we get to God, the more painful it is to see that disparity between that which is less real and that which is more real, ultimately real. Look at how Paul ends this whole thing here. Verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now there's something missing here. Anybody else notice an omission? I mean, almost a dozen times he has detailed his struggles and his failures, and then he just jumps to a conclusion. Well, thanks be to God. I mean, what is going on here? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for what, Paul? What did I miss? Are there verses missing in my copy of Romans? I mean, what is going on? What you're giving me here, Paul, is a conclusion without a solution. You've resolved nothing for us, Paul. You've described this untenable tension that we live in. You said, if I had to sum it up, think of the Christian life as, I don't know, civil war? Thanks be to God, and then you're gone. And that's all you leave me with. Not very helpful, Paul. And not only that, but the syllogism is broken. God punishes evildoers. I am an evildoer. God rescues me. What? That doesn't make logical sense. see what happens is God breaks into this whole thing with authority from the outside completely upsets reality without even a sufficient explanation God's spirit is like the wind blowing where it will doing what it pleases I mean the only solution we get here is that all of a sudden that which is less real becomes nothing in the presence of that which is most real and mountains melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Paul's not saying that your hatred toward the one who took advantage of you isn't real. He's not saying that. He's not saying that your feelings of insufficiency and insecurity aren't real. He's not saying that our ever-ingenious ways of being selfish aren't real. He's just saying that those things are less real than the resurrected and living Jesus Christ. May God give us ears to hear and eyes to see.